Simple Beep, Episode 71, Apple Typography. Hello, and welcome to Simple Beep, a podcast looking back at the history of Apple and the Mac community. I'm Ed Cormany. And I'm Brian Satorius. On this episode, we're going to talk about a topic that I'm frankly not sure how it slipped past on our original topic list. I, I guess, you know, certain things just you take for granted because they blend in, but it's undoubtedly true that Apple's typography, their fonts, and the design of those fonts has played a major role in the Mac and now on iOS devices as well. So we're going to go through a history of Apple's typefaces. But before we do that, I don't think we have a sort of traditional follow-up, but we've got a couple of maybe like news items as we're recording that made us think of the classic Mac. Yes, we are recording this uh, the week after WWDC 2018, where, among other things, macOS Mojave was announced. And this will be the last version of the Mac operating system to support 32-bit applications and 32-bit frameworks. And the most uh, relevant to us among all of that is the QuickTime framework. Time to pour one out. Maybe we should link to an article from a few weeks ago on Six Colors, where Jason Snell was talking about the uh, the current state of the QuickTime player versus the old QuickTime 7 player and the things that uh, it is far more useful for. And its life has now been limited. QuickTime 7 player is not going to do anything a year from now. And it'll be interesting to see if the QuickTime name lives on at all. So that'll be one for us to uh, check back in on and maybe... If uh, if the entire saga of QuickTime comes to an end and even the name is gone from the built-in video player that presumably Apple will still ship some sort of built-in video capability uh, for just, you know, previewing a movie file or something like that. Uh, but it could get rolled into the Finder. It could get rolled into Preview. We shall see. We'll, we'll keep an eye on QuickTime and its kin. I guess in that way, it's almost follow-up to our previous episode about Airport where at some point Apple dropped the proprietary airport branding from the uh, system software and it just became Wi-Fi. Is QuickTime just going to become movie file? Yeah, right. Well, the, the DVD player did get a 64-bit update and they changed the icon from the like brushed metal control thing that it used to be to just an image of a DVD. Like it's not, oh. it's, it's the same icon that's used if you actually insert a DVD and, and it's shown, uh, on the desktop, which is, uh, which is pretty funny. So you'll just get, um, generic app icon with a little like play pause indicator on it or something. I don't even know what they would call it. <laughs> I mean, I guess, uh, back in classic Mac, it was called movie player, wasn't it? With, Camel cakes. Well, they could, they could just add a space and still call it movie player. There you go. One other retro thing that I stumbled upon since we last recorded, uh, which I think has been going on for longer than that, but is an awesome little project, is a Twitter bot that I found that you can visit at Vox underscore plus. And the Vox is for Vox Media and all of their different websites, um, which includes things like um, The Verge and SB Nation, and many others as well. And this is created by someone there. And what the bot does is it takes data from their RSS feed and then makes fake classic Mac screenshots using the articles. So, like, it, I don't think that uh, 
any kind of actual like system six process is rendering these websites. Like they're rendered to an image and then some post processing is done, but it's really quite entertaining. So, uh, the, the name of the window is the name of the site that it's coming from. And then it says the publication date. And then it has a hypercard Atkinson dithered, uh, image, uh, of the hero image. And then in giant Chicago font leading into our topic, uh, the, the headline with some, some pretty entertaining ones here. Um, just, you know, because of the nature of the, you know, modern news versus, uh, the old school one bit presentation, uh, is, is pretty great. Uh, and, and, you know, that, that dithering engine still really works for a lot of things for any of the kind of like photos that are being put on there. There was one though, um, I'm scrolling through it now. Oh yeah. Uh, Kings get hilariously petty in congratulating the warriors on Twitter. And the hero image is a screenshot of an iMessage and the text has become completely illegible because of the dithering effect. Whereas, uh, the photo in the one above, Star Wars Battlefront 2 updates will let players fight in the Clone Wars, uh, is very recognizably a uh, you know, some stormtroopers. I love how you mentioned the title of the window reflects which of the Vox properties it's coming from. But it's also like um, the opened floppy disk icon from like pre-OS 8.5 era, where it's like the dithered full mask of the icon. And uh, that label is the website's name as well. Right. So it says uh, the the name of or, or the description of the Twitter account says all the news that's fit to HyperCard. <laughs> so these are kind of like HyperCard stacks, I guess. Um, and, you know, as long. Yeah, it looks like the floppy disk icon because it's square. But anything that you would have open would, would have that. So we'll link that in the show notes. A little creation of Jeff Kramer at Vox. Who's uh, his his Twitter avatar also is a one bit dithered image, which is nice. All right, that does it for the kind of uh, what's in the news <laughs> follow up portion. Let's get on to the main focus of this episode: Apple typography. And we'd like to start with the typography that appeared on screen, whether in system software or fonts that you could use in a variety of your classic Mac apps. So the thing that got us thinking about this in perhaps more detail than we had in the past is uh, an article that we'll get to a little bit later and an awesome new GitHub repo that we'll link to in the show notes. Um, and this is from John D. Duncan III, um, and he has put this together. It has uh, some code that actually deconstructs original like even like pre-font suitcase Mac fonts, which were in an even more obscure format. And also on that GitHub site are the specimens, examples of these. And he's done it in a really nice format where you can see uh, it's got like a, a pix- enlarged pixels, but then a grid between them. So you can really see, you know, like the um, like the icon editor in ResEdit. Um, so you can really see the way in which these fonts are constructed pixel by pixel. And of course, that was the only way to create fonts at the beginning of the Mac. And in fact, you know, a lot of these fonts and other icon creations were made 
in the analog world, like on graph paper, and then brought over into the digital realm because that was just how strict the limitations were. You had very small screen and you only had one bit graphics and you wanted, you know, part of the Mac graphical user interface was to move beyond just having, uh, you know, an 80 character wide display with essentially one typeface, one monospace typeface. It was bringing, uh, all of those things from the paper world, you know, the white on, uh, you know, the black text on white as opposed to colored or white text on black. And the print world had tons of typography design. I mean, really going back hundreds of years. If you want to study the history of typography, it goes all the way back to as long as we've been printing text. But um, all of that was in the print world and the Mac wanted to represent it to the best of its ability. And really, the person who was responsible for this was Susan Kerr, who, in addition to doing icon design, was probably even more influential the font designs that she made for the original Macintosh. You'll notice that a lot of them are names of uh, major cosmopolitan cities around the world at the time. Uh, it's kind of setting like a fashion sense for the fonts instead of names that uh, like Comic Sans MS is pretty descriptive uh, for what the font is. It's a sans serif font that looks like it's from a comic book, and I think it's the Microsoft variant. But uh, just like the Apple Macintosh distinguished itself from other kind of faceless, cold PCs in many ways, I think these font names, in addition to the actual letter forms that uh, they displayed, uh, were just a lot more elegant. <laughs> Like you said, it has some personality or trying to convey some sense of fashion uh, or an, even just an association uh, with the font name to its style. Well, first of all, when choosing a font, you had to have some kind of idea of what you were going to get. Um, and there were no WYSIWYG font menus. I mean, you you know, on the original Mac, you could go through and choose all nine or ten of your fonts and 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 just sort of do it by process of elimination. But the notion that you could actually convey something in the name of the font was useful as opposed to like, um, I'm thinking about some of the font names that were created by like engineers. Like if you've ever used LaTeX to create, uh, you know, to typeset a document. And that's really a, a great example of people who like care about typography say like, oh, you got to use LaTeX because it's going to give you all this control. But Pretty much everyone uses the default font in LaTeX, and they think that it looks good. I think it looks bad. The name of that font is Computer Modern, <laughs> and people are still using it. Like People are writing uh, academic papers and things uh, <laughs> and putting it in a font that is literally called Computer Modern, which has been around for multiple decades. <laughs> so that seems kind of ridiculous to just have basically no description for your fonts. And some of these are fonts that you'll recognize as like still being on your Mac today. And some of them are ones that have gone away, especially in the transition from bitmap fonts, where every pixel is carefully arranged at every font size, to the current world that we have with, uh, with vector-based fonts that can scale to any size. So we're going to go through some of these in a list, but 
Uh, obviously, we're not going to try to describe every font because, first of all, we're not typography experts. And second of all, that would make for really bad podcasting, I think, because this is very visual. Uh, this is the point where we say you should really check out and see what these fonts look like. Uh, if, you know, not if you're driving, but take the time to look at that link that we, uh, will put in the show notes that gives great examples of all of these. But we'll give an idea, we'll go through these to give an idea of the range that was conveyed in the original Mac. Like we said, it's trying to emulate print and emulate the range of what was available outside of the digital world. We'll kick off our list with the Athens font. This was a slab serif. Um, I don't remember using this one too much. No, but I think it's a good example of one that has a lot of kind of character to it because the you know, very, very few other computers were even going to attempt a slab serif at this point, which is um, a font that has basically even stroke length or even stroke width all throughout and then these big chunky serifs. Um, it's a display font, so you wouldn't want to write like an entire essay in this font. It would be very difficult to read. And in fact, I think it's only available at the 18 point size. So in fact, many of these, so there's, there's a distinction with these fonts where at each point size, they had to be created or the system could try to scale them, but very, very poorly, uh, because there was no anti-aliasing, uh, there was nothing of that sort. Um, and so if you tried to scale something from 12 to 14 point and only the 12 point version existed, it would be very, very jaggy and ugly. I think in that situation, you could also watch the letters quote unquote dance around as it tried to kern, uh, certain ligatures or something that it didn't have, you know, one-to-one ratios for, uh, I don't know. What I, of course, I can't think of a common ligature off the top of my head or, or where common kerning is required, but like sliding in the tail of a Y or a J uh, under the letter immediately preceding it. Um, if you were in one of these mismatched scale sizes, you could watch the J kind of wiggle left and right as the system tried to figure out what to do. The next one is probably a far better known font, the Chicago font, uh, which is probably the most iconic of the original Macintosh fonts because it was the system font. Um, some interesting history for the Chicago font is that it was originally called Elephant, like a pun between elephant and font. And the reason for that was because of its bold design. So it's a fairly bold sans serif. And uh, so it was big and bold and chunky. But then uh, once the uh, once the puns were were removed in favor of uh, of cities of the world, it got the name of Chicago. The next font on the list is Geneva, which um, has like very strong implications for me because while Chicago was the predominant system font, I think Geneva and specifically Nine Point Geneva was a system font for things like icon labels and uh, like descriptive label text under buttons in system preferences and things like that. And uh, I also want to say that 12-point Geneva was the uh, default font in teach text and later simple text. And so I have this visceral uh, reaction or association that 12-point Geneva 
is plain text is unstyled text to me, which is, you know, <laughs> it's not the case. And Ed and I were talking before we started recording about uh, the days of plain text and when the uh, command T shortcut would revert your document to plain text. Still do it. 17 years later, broken. <laughs> An interesting bit of trivia about the Geneva font is that it was inspired by the Swiss standard Helvetica font, but, uh, you know, not a direct ripoff. And I love that they used the Swiss city Geneva as its name. Yeah, there are definitely, there are some similarities and some differences, especially at the small point sizes. Um, You know, at the very small point sizes, you run into the questions of like, what can you do, (laughs) right? You've you've got a nine or a 10 point font. You have no anti-aliasing and you need to make the letter a lowercase v. It can only be six pixels tall and it has to go, you know, it has to have a V shape. There has to be an angle to it. You only have maybe like two angles to choose from. Like you, you can do sort of a 30 degree angle or a 45 degree angle. Like that's it. So I think that, you know, the v, lowercase V's in Geneva, uh, and Helvetica are identical, but some of the big, uh, differences that gave it a different character is like in Helvetica, the lowercase A has almost like a little serif off the end. Uh, in an otherwise sans serif font, and in Geneva it ends straight. Um, and in Geneva, the lowercase t has a bar that goes all the way across. And in Helvetica, uh, it only it doesn't go to the left of the bar. So these minor minor differences between the fonts, but that give them an overall different character. So like that that difference in the t in Helvetica makes Helvetica feel like a tighter font. Like you can fit more letters in less width, um, and Geneva is a little bit looser. And you can imagine that one of the things that probably con- contributed to the design of Geneva is, I mean, I think from very early on, the Mac included both Geneva and Helvetica, but maybe not at the very beginning. Maybe they weren't able to license Helvetica. So you get a version of Helvetica and like like I said, you, you say, oh, well, what little, what little refinements would I like to make? I, I, in this case, I suppose being Susan Care, what little refinements to this font would I like to make, uh, enough to make it different and enough to make it the same in the places where you go, I, I just had no options. All I had was, you know, a, a six by nine grid of pixels. What do you want me to do? <laughs> Let's move on to a font that, uh, had more pixels to work with because it was one of these display fonts that only came in the larger size, and that is London. Uh, true to its name, I, I didn't even know that this was a, an original Mac font, but it makes sense. True to its name, it's a black letter font. So the type that you would find, you know, like the New York Times, uh, or, you know, probably more like, you know, the, the Times of London, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, the, the newspaper header font, um, with multiple strokes uh, and and really nicely rendered for uh, something that's only 18 pixels tall. The next on the list is Los Angeles, which is a script font. Um, it's kind of, to me, like a, like a kind of italicized handwriting font. <laughs> right, like with a very thin pen, as opposed to London, which has this, you know, very, very thick stroke calligraphic black letter. Or even Chicago, which always kind of looked a little bold to me, even at its you know normal weight. Uh, I think all of the strokes in the Los Angeles font are uh, one pixel wide wherever possible. Yeah, even at the larger sizes, even at 24 point, they're one pixel strokes. 
and so yeah, you would call this like a light or even like an ultra light font uh, today. Or if you do the like, there, there's also a system for weight weighting fonts where you do it in like basically multiples of a hundred. This would be like a 300 weight font or a 400 weight font where it goes up to basically a thousand is like a black uh, and 800 is true bold and 600 is semi bold, those kind of things. So this is a very, very thin font. I was trying to figure out where I had seen this one before. Um, I know there's some app that made heavy use of this as like interface text or a, a headline font. Did you play the Where in the USA or Where in the World is Carmen San Diego games of the like pre OS 8 era? Oh, I'm sure I did. Okay. I was saving this for the end, but um, I think Los Angeles was the font they used on all the like in game newspapers with headlines like Gumshoe Catches Thief or Gumshoe Lets Thief Get Away. That sounds exactly like what I was trying to remember. And I think there are one or two more fonts in this list. There's definitely one more uh, that was heavily used in Carmen Sandiego that I had, you know, like sense memory flashbacks when uh, doing the research for this episode. Well, and this was, you know, another reason for including these fonts was not like not aiming like straight for desktop publishing um, was the fact that they were resources for game developers and application developers to make it so that there was some you know, there were uniform resources to draw on, but that depending on the character of what you were presenting in your application, you had the ability to have multiple fonts that you knew were installed as part of the system that you didn't have to somehow license and bundle within your application. You, if, If you said, display this in Los Angeles, you could be reasonably confident that unless someone went in and actually removed the font, from their system, that it would be there. Uh, Next on our world tour of fonts is uh, perhaps my favorite in the entire list, which is the monospace font, Monaco. And I tried to use Monaco for about as long as I could, especially Monaco 9. Um, To me, Monaco 9 is like, it's the perfect font, Uh, which, you know... (laughs) Is interesting given the extremely broad world of typography for me to say, ah, I like the one that is like the most minimal, the most restricted. It has to be monospace, so all the letters have to be the same width. Uh, it's nine pixels tall, again, giving you very little room to work with in terms of, you know, well, how are you going to make a W? There's only so many ways. But I love Monaco 9. It's, uh, it's like the quintessential coding font, especially, I think. There is character in just like you know, so little space. The C in Monaco, which appears if you write the name of the font, like you would think that it would just be like the O, which is literally it's just like three pic. It's a five pixel. Uh, it's a five pixel square with the corners knocked out. So it's just like three, three, three on a side to make a, an O. So you'd think the C would just be the same thing, except you would leave a gap. Nope. Um, the C runs an extra pixel along the baseline to give it this flat bottom that makes it look unlike the C in any of the other fonts. It's uh, it's incredibly well designed. Yeah, like you said, the kind of quintessential programming font. When I see Monaco 9, I immediately think I'm I'm programming in HyperTalk because I think it was the only the only monospace font for 
the kind of early versions of HyperCard, Hyper uh, when you went into the HyperTalk code editing window modal, uh, you, you were limited to Monaco 9. And one of the things that I remember is early in, like in very early macOS, uh, before a lot of fancy font anti-aliasing stuff got done, and certainly before Retina, uh, I think that Monaco 11 was the default font in the terminal app. And one of the weird things about Monaco is that uh, it exists at pretty much every font size with specific bitmap variants. It's not like it's getting weird scaling. But um, as as much as Monaco 9, I feel like, is perfect, Monaco 11 is, like, beaten with an ugly stick. <laughs> it, it, I hate it. It looks so bad to me. And so uh, that's one of the interesting things. And then, you know, today I don't use Monaco because it, with subpixel anti-aliasing or on Retina, um, or having to use larger font sizes because um, Monaco 9 is really a little bit of a, of a struggle for me with at this point. Um, I wish it wasn't. I wish my eyes were perfect. But yeah, I've I've moved away from it. Unfortunately, I wish I wish I could go back. I would take like I would take like eighteen point pixel quadrupled Monaco nine um, on a Retina screen any day. Next on the list is the New York font, which was a serif font, and I think most notable for. Uh, at least at, at bigger sizes, looking a lot like Apple's Garamond variant, which we will discuss more later on in this episode. But basically, uh, a, a cheap way to approximate Apple marketing materials on uh, the Mac at, you have at home. <laughs> it's kind of, and I think the name also is that this is your stand-in for what is known in the Windows world as Times New Roman. Mm-hmm. Next is one that you probably heard of a few years ago because... Uh, <laughs> A new font was issued with the same name, and this led to many jokes. The San Francisco font that shipped with the original Macintosh does not look like the San Francisco font that ships with your current Macintosh. No. No, not at all. Uh, It would be very jarring if this San Francisco were your system font, um, because it's in the ransom note style. Uh, So every, every letter is different. Uh, Some are outlined, some are filled in. It's another large display font. The baseline, there is no baseline. Every every letter is at a different level uh, to give that pasted together effect. Uh, And of course, every repetition, the glyphs don't change. So if you write uh, five O's next to each other, they're all going to look the same. Uh, Not that advanced, but when you have a variety of letters next to each other, you get some really wild effects with the original San Francisco. The next is Toronto, which was a thin serif font. I kind of thought of it as the serif companion to Los Angeles. They were both kind of the the one pixel width at uh, increased sizes, but this one had the serifs on your, you know, the tails on your W's and et cetera. Yeah. And I look at it as uh, it looks very similar to New York. Um, and you know, if New York is the most salient city in the United States, Toronto is the most salient city in Canada. And, you know, we kind of look the same. Fair enough. (laughs) And the last one is one that is distinct, uh, for multiple reasons, uh, not only for its appearance, 
but also because it's the odd one out in terms of its designer, which is Venice. And so this is kind of a calligraphy font, but a, a, a staid calligraphy font um, with uh, lots of strokes angling upward and to the right. Uh, and this one was not designed by Susan Kerr, but was designed by Bill Atkinson and also got a lot of use in uh, in various games uh, for for different effects. This was the one that evoked the early ages of Carmen Sandiego to me. I think the majority of the game body text was set in Venice. We'll link to some screenshots of that. And it's not like for this is kind of halfway between a display font and one that you would would actually use for extended text. Uh, it doesn't feel like a slog. And so that wraps up our list of original Mac fonts, mostly designed by Susan Care, that had standard Latin characters. Oh, yes, but there were two more. And uh, the first was Cairo, which was a set of uh, pictograms, dingbats, whatever you want to call them, proto-emoji. <laughs> um, and I think this was very well known among children who were conveniently using the Mac OS at the time, because uh, it figured very heavily into kid picks, which we've uh, discussed here on a prior episode. Um, and I almost want to say that some of the Cairo uh, dingbat letter forms became UI elements in kid picks. Like there's one of a kind of portly bald face that has two sprigs of hair coming out the top. And this was very similar to the uh, the oh no, oh no guy tool in Kid Picks that was yeah, your undo and your redo and uh, things like that. Yeah, there are a couple of very stylized portraits of a man and woman. And then the things that you would think of, like you said, more as emoji style or dingbat style, pointing hands, a lot of the tools from Mac Paint, like a paintbrush, spray can, uh, some more uh, just random things like palm tree and cactus uh, and Claris the dog cow, of course, also makes a first appearance in the Cairo font. And one of the things that is notable about this font is the fact that because it's not designed for writing words, the characters themselves are just like, they're all kinds of different shapes. Some are extremely long, some are, uh, some are you know, narrower than others, as opposed to, say, emoji that we have today where everything is very standardized into square canvas for each one. And of course, there can be highly detailed art within there. We did an episode and a half on that. Um, But here it's like, I have a particular object I want to represent. What are the pixels I need for that? And this is one of the features of the you know, the proportional width fonts and the way that they were encoded on the Mac was they could be of essentially arbitrary width, so they didn't have to fit into that square canvas. One thing that you mentioned, Brian, was the fact that these often then got used effectively as interface elements. And that's, again, a great parallel to Emoji, where there was some controversy like a year or so ago, where Apple was starting to reject iOS apps that were using Emoji as part of their interface, because after all, the the Apple emoji set is also a font, and it's a font that Apple has designed and they own the copyright on. And, you know, you are effectively licensed to use it on your iOS devices or your Macs. But 
they were saying, oh, all of a sudden they said, oh, well, if you used an emoji as like a bullet in a list in your app, rejected. <laughs> um, or if you had made a button that had emoji as the text of the button instead of a word, rejected. And just as we're recording this, last week they made a bunch of clarifications to the app submission guidelines and emoji are now allowed to be in as long as you render them as the font as opposed to embedding them in your app or trying to use them on other platforms like Slack infamously did for a long time, basically just stealing all the Apple emoji and putting them on the web and on Android and wherever they wanted. <laughs> That's what I was just going to say is, is uh, the Slack implementation of Apple's emoji was uh, just a train wreck for a while. There was some kind of detente uh, that was made behind the scenes where uh, Slack stopped using the Apple emoji on other platforms. And I remember when that update got pushed in my office, there was just like a massive complaining thread of all the Windows users that their emoji got ugly. <laughs> yeah. And um, not to turn this into the emoji podcast, but uh, this a similar thing happened with WhatsApp. I think uh, WhatsApp on Android and it's everywhere. Windows phone, Nokia would, they just, I think they put in Apple's emoji set as images to make sure that they would render consistently. And in a kind of flip on all of this, Twitter recently started force overriding whatever your Android provider, uh, their emoji set is with Twitter's own custom emoji set to cut down on some of the inconsistency between different Android vendors. So this is a thing that's probably going to still be an issue across uh, a whole bunch of platforms, but hopefully not Apple anymore. Right. This is a 40-some-year-old issue at this point. And I think, you know, it's interesting, though, that this is something that has lasted so long that basically it's really good for the platform vendor to give a useful set of glyphs over to people that they can use and that they can rely on. And Apple has put some serious design into their current emoji, and they put some serious effort into designing these dingbats all the way back to the original Mac. Um, and as far as I knew, Cairo was the dingbats font on the Mac. And then other things came along from third parties. I mean, obviously, you, know, you could install third-party fonts on the Mac from very early on. I think the one that most people saw in their font list was Zapf Dingbats, which was named after the typography designer. Uh, I think it's Hermann Zapf. And you can't forget about Wingdings, which I think came with Microsoft Office. Exactly. It was a Microsoft creation and was standard on Windows. Um, but then if you had Microsoft Works or a Microsoft Office installation, um, and then kind of became a de facto standard for Wingdings. Uh, but one of the things that got us on this quest about the fonts was the revelation to us of the fact that from very early on in the Mac OS, there was another Dingbat font that did not fit the pattern of the city names. It was called Taliesin. And this was one of the things that was uh, unearthed on Twitter and in a Medium post that we'll link to um, called Hidden Sheep and Typography Archaeology that goes into uh, all of these early Apple fonts and finds the little uh, the little dingbats and glyphs. So there were uh, multiple dingbat fonts, as, we'll, as we said, but then 
In some of these fonts, they also had hidden dingbats, where long before Unicode, um, there was the Mac Roman text encoding format, which gave 128 different characters that you could use, and that left uh, some space after getting all of the numbers, uppercase and lowercase letters with accent marks and common punctuation. And a few of these had uh, little little dingbats snuck into places in the font file that you couldn't really access unless you actually cracked them open with a font editor because um, they, they weren't even typable using some like obscure option shift command control kind of like they just were not there. So in Geneva, there's a little sheep. Um, one other font has some little footprints. Um, and then, of course, there were the dingbat fonts where you could type a whole bunch of these. Cairo and then Taliesin, which we had never heard of. Apparently, um, up until a point, I think it was just called, Mo- oh, maybe Mobile, as in the Alabama city or Mobile. No. So Okay, so there, there's a thread that we'll link to in the show notes. Uh, Chris Espinosa... Thank you, Chris, for being there and knowing these things. Weighed in on this. So where uh, where Cairo was this uh, more sort of emoji-like random things, you know, animals and plants and arrows and uh, sun and moon, all of that kind of thing. And gun, pistol. There's, It's not a water pistol in Cairo. It's, it's like a big rifle. Oh, yeah. There's a rifle. There, there's both a pistol and a rifle. And the rifle is one of the widest characters. It's like... 30-some pixels wide. It's ridiculous. But Taliesin looks more like it has um, sort of like schematics for architecture uh, or for like floor plans. There's like sectional couches. There's a sign that says bath. There's an overhead view of a toilet. Um, There are people and plants. So these are the kinds of things that like you would kind of scatter around, I guess, an architectural drawing um, or maybe use in like a very early CAD program to to try to lay something out. Um, one of the things I noticed as I was typing in it is that these fonts are kind of hard to uh, manage um, because you don't know what letter is going to give you what. And often a sample of a font will be in alphabetical order, but it looks like Taliesin is actually organized by the QWERTY layout. So if you type ASD, you get one, two, and three cushion couches. Um, and if you type ZXCVB, you get all glyphs that are uh, like silhouettes of people. So it was actually organized according to the keyboard layout as opposed to according to the um, character chart um, or alphabetical order. And I think that the name Taliesin probably comes from a uh, reference to Frank Lloyd Wright and this was the name of his studio and of uh, another house that he designed. Um, and so there's the architectural link up. Chris Espinosa in that tweet said that someone in Apple Legal was maybe worried that the estate of Frank Lloyd Wright was going to get into a legal argument over the fact that it was called Taliesin and had these kind of characteristics to it. And so they, they renamed it. And because of all of the furniture pieces that were in it. He says that he thinks that mobile is a pun on the French word for furniture, which is similar to that, but I'm not going to attempt to pronounce. <laughs> Hang on. I'm going to put this into Google Translate. Muebles. 
so yeah, this, this font was around and we had never heard of it. And we were wondering, oh my gosh, is it going to be extremely difficult to get access to? There are these old, old font files on GitHub. Are we going to have to do something crazy to get at it? Um, I started digging and nope, there's a, there's a collection that's just called, it's like old Mac fonts or something totally generic <laughs> on, uh, on Macintosh Garden. And it's just one giant font suitcase. You can install it in one fell swoop. Uh, and I'm running it in like OS nine in sheep shaver. Um, and there it is. It's Taliesin. You can play with all of these dingbats. Um, and, uh, there's a little, uh, piece of lost Mac history that's resurfaced. I think my favorite little piece of this entire, the medium article rediscovering the fonts is that the sheep glyph that was hidden in the Geneva font had two versions. So like the system would scale for certain ranges, but there was one that was, you know, like pixel point perfect by Susan Kerr at 18 points and then a redrawn baby sheep, half the size, at nine points. All right. Um, so those were all of the original Mac system fonts with character that were made for display. You know, like you write out text or you zoom through all your dingbats. Uh, but like we alluded to when we passed over some of them, a lot of these fonts were also used for the system user interface. And like we said, the the first one and the one probably nearest and dearest to our hearts was Chicago, the system font from the original Macintosh all the way up to macOS 8. Yeah, and I think we covered the the characteristics of Chicago, but it was certainly one of the things that gave the Mac its its appearance uh, in, because it was always present, right? I mean, it's in the menu bar, it's in the title bar of every window. Uh, so as long as you were working on your Mac, you had some specimen of the Chicago font uh, on there. Also, um, I think that uh, I was just thinking of this just sprung to mind, the fact that in Jurassic Park on the computer that is used there, which is declared to be a Unix computer, <laughs> um, but definitely has some Mac-like touches, uh, Chicago features prominently on the screen in the interface of that computer. <laughs> Even when you're just designing for uh, sort of a fakey interface for for a movie, it still spoke system font. When the system interface changed to Apple Platinum in macOS 8, the default system font changed from Chicago to charcoal. And uh, it always made me uncomfortable. <laughs> charcoal is really like Uncanny Valley Chicago. But I think that there's an important difference between them. I was I was playing with them just before we started recording, and charcoal is kind of an update to Chicago in the way that Geneva is an update to Helvetica, um, where there are just some minor changes. But I think it's also uh, the changes were made to show off the technical features that were now present in Mac OS 8. So in Mac OS 8, this was the first time that the system provided capabilities for font anti-aliasing. And so I, I was going through and changing the settings uh, because in Mac OS 8, it allows you to change the system font to many different things. Not every single font that's installed on your system, but many of them and some weird ones, which we'll get to in a minute. But what I found was that charcoal with anti-aliasing on looked really good 
but with it off looked kind kind of weird. Like, what? Did, why did you mess up Chicago? Um, and of course, the classic Chicago with no anti-aliasing still looks good in OS 8, OS 9. But Chicago with anti-aliasing turned on because it, you know, it's an automatic process that happens to it. It's not like how Chicago was originally created pixel by pixel. The anti-aliasing is not done by the font creator. It's done by the system. And it looks really kind of muddy and bad. So I think that the reason that they were both given as options and the development of Charcoal was to show off the font anti-aliasing in OS 8. But like I said, uh, (laughs) you could choose some other things in in OS 8 for your system font. And I think that these were more or less holdovers from the early Copeland days when we were expecting to get lots of uh, lots of interesting theming case capabilities in OS 8, like high-tech and gizmo. Um, and so if you go into the appearance control panel under fonts, you can choose many different fonts. Um, <laughs> one of them that I have available here is Techno, which is that uh, very condensed, uh, it almost looks like Impact, but even more condensed. This is the font that was included in the the high-tech theme, that dark gradient theme that was previewed and never ultimately released. But I have some other ridiculous options here, including Sand. Sand is a font that where all the letters look like they've kind of been beaten up. Thick strokes, uh, a little italicized, and scratchy. Yep, and it looks terrible. Like, it doesn't matter whether you have anti-aliasing on or not. It makes the system look completely ridiculous. Then there are other options here in, in OS 8. Uh, you can choose the small system font, which it says for explanatory text and labels. And it only gives me the choice of Geneva, so... You remembered that accurately, Brian, and for whatever reason, Geneva is the only one that is sacrosanct there. And then there's the views font uh, for lists and icons. So these are your icon labels, uh, like you said, traditionally set to Geneva 9, which looks really good. Here I click on the font menu, and I have my choice of everything, Um, (laughs) which in fact means I can choose Cairo. As the font uh, for the views font, and this uh, then turns all of my icon labels into illegible hieroglyphics slash wingdings slash proto emoji. <laughs> These are the kinds of things that in the classic Mac era we would like pull as a prank on someone who did not know about this view. You would go and change uh, change their views font to Cairo and walk away and watch watch them panic. <laughs> But as far as the classic Mac OS was concerned, it was really those two main system fonts, Chicago and Charcoal. And that was basically the end of the system fonts that were created uh, bitmap first. With the transition to Mac OS X and the Aqua interface came a new system font. And I still don't know the correct way to say this, so I'm going to say it the kind of Spanish way, <laughs> Lucida Grande. <laughs> and I always said Lucida Grande, so uh, one of us is right. This is probably familiar to anyone who used a Mac in like the past decade or so, or certainly before that too, since the uh, year 2000 release of Mac OS X. Um, I remember this, you know, it being part of the grand Aqua interface announcement, uh, new system font, and Apple very quickly adopting it in 
you know, like they're the built-in applications, of course, it was a system font, but you could get it in whatever version of iTunes was released for the classic Mac OS, like an update to iTunes one or iTunes two, um, at the same time that there was also iTunes available for Mac OS 10. And I think it might not have been ResEdit. It might've been some other kind of poking around in the application and its resources. You could get the Lucida Grande or Grande font out of the classic macOS iTunes. And like Ed just said, at least get it in part of your system UI. And I did that and it was just, it was bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, I remember doing that with fonts where like, even if you just had the font resource, you needed like you needed some other special sauce to actually turn it into a font suitcase that wouldn't crash your system. One of the other things I think was um, maybe one of the complaints that people had about Lucida being the system font is that it became the system font everywhere, so that there was this sense of visual uniformity that was not present where you had that large system font, small system font, and views font all separate, um, where you could turn that into monstrosity, or you could leave it at the default, which still had that distinction between Chicago slash charcoal and Geneva. And so, you know, people people who do design uh, and work with fonts are always looking for good pairs of fonts or sets of fonts that work together to not create uniformity, but also not be jarring in combination. And Chicago and Geneva did a lot of good work together for many, many years. And then they were replaced by a single font that I think was what people saw as being like too plain by fact of being too uniform, that everything was Lucida Grand 12-point regular pretty much everywhere. And I think what compounded that is, sure, it wasn't a bitmap font, but it was a font designed for computer displays and easy reading, perfect legibility. So on top of it being the system font for every aspect of system text, a lot of popular websites would make it their body text font as well. I I think of Facebook as the number one, but I'm sure lots of other, maybe even some forum software uh, adopted Lucida Grande as the the body text. So like Lucida Grand, comma, Helvetica, comma, sans serif in the font description. <laughs> yeah. In the CSS stack. Yes. Uh, so yeah, your, your system level stuff, like your menu bar, your application Chrome, and uh, indeed the content itself could have all been different weights or styles of the same typeface in this era. Then people got even madder when they replaced Lucida Grand because it got replaced by Helvetica Noia, which is a variant of Helvetica. And people were like, are, are you serious, Apple? You, after all this time, you've just gone back to Helvetica? Um, what was wrong with Lucida? At least it was different. <laughs> At least it's not on every computer on the planet, just yours. <laughs> um, but there was a, a brief period where uh, Helvetica was the system font. Uh Perhaps, you know, knowing how the timescales on which Apple develops things, they already knew that they had their own system font coming up, um, which is the new San Francisco, which is still the system font today. Those were the Mac system fonts, but uh, we'd be remiss if we left out Apple's mobile devices and not just the the current ones that run iOS. Uh, please don't forget that, that at one point there was an iPod <laughs> and uh I only have this listed in the notes first, 
because uh, it's not Apple's first mobile device chronologically, but it does harken all the way back to the original Chicago. The first iPods, um, like the now playing screen and the menus were all set in Chicago and a bitmapped one at that. It makes so much sense, right? It was the first black on white one bit display that Apple had produced in a long time. <laughs> and it looked good. It not only did it uh, if if you were a Mac user, as I guess you had to have been for the very, very first iPod um, or just, you know, someone who picked it up, it, it it had that good feel of like this is this is a computer device, but it, it's one that has personality um, for the iPod mini. I guess <laughs> because it was a smaller screen, they moved to uh, the font SB Sans. And uh, this font, I think, is very beloved in the the old time classic Mac community. Um, the weight, at least, that they used for the iPod mini was another one of these kind of single pixel width strokes. And this font had been seen in Apple platforms before the iPod mini, uh, probably most notably as a first-party solution in the Newton OS. Uh, everything there was set in SB Sans as well. But uh, something that I think was more important to me, certainly, maybe you too, Ed, was uh, in all the hubbub leading up to the Copeland OS 8 transition, um, there were, you know, there were kaleidoscope schemes, there was speculation, but I think the the biggest thing was the Aaron extension to make your System 7 Mac look like the purported Copeland OS Mac and their choice of system font was SB Sans. As I've used kaleidoscoping emulation recently, one of the things I always marveled at was, oh, some of the schemes could actually change the system font because I thought that that was not possible. I had forgotten about the ability to change your system font to sand. Um, and so, and the fact that there must be, you know, if, if not really like an API, some sort of, you know, private method for how the system actually changes that. And then basically all that Kaleidoscope had to do was overwrite the list of which fonts were available to make pretty much any font available. You mentioned also that uh, going to a smaller font for the iPod mini versus the full-size iPod. And I don't know what the relative resolutions of those displays were, but it's definitely the case that Chicago scales up from 12 point pretty well. Um, although you will see, uh, I mean, there are some really bad vector versions of Chicago. And so like you'll see on like advertisements and billboards, these really curly, ugly things that are clearly Chicago, but you desperately wish that they weren't. <laughs> but the fact is that Chicago started in life as a 12 point font. And going any smaller is was really not going to work. Just the space between the letters doesn't work. You can't have the thick strokes and space. It just becomes smashed together. So if they were working with really fewer pixels on the iPod mini, that would make good sense for the change. When the iPod got a color screen in the iPod photo or later just fourth generation, uh, Apple switched to a new font that was called Podium Sans. And originally in our notes, I was like, oh, I remember this. This was kind of just like anti-aliased Chicago. But uh, I'm glad I went back and checked because it wasn't. <laughs> um, it was an anti-aliased font, you know, taking advantage of the color display and you know, being able to show grayscale necessary for anti-aliasing. Um, but it was designed to be closer to Myriad Pro, 
which we will get to in a moment, but was basically Apple's marketing font at the time uh, to kind of get that cohesion, which is something we have now with San Francisco. Yeah, I missed that one entirely, I guess, because I never had an iPod photo. Um, And I think maybe the video ones had Podium Sans as well, but it was not too long after that that we went to iOS devices, which started with Helvetica in different weights. I I just remember, like, if you go back and look at the announcement video for iOS 7, like developer beta one, it was so thin. Yes, they were on like the very thinnest weight of uh, of Helvetica Noia, and it was it was troublesome. Um, it, it really posed some some legibility problems, and they uh, they beefed it up a little bit after that. Uh, and then they resolved the problem once and for all by developing their own typeface, which is San Francisco, which has flexibility of weight, um, but where the thin or light variants of San Francisco are a little bit heavier than the corresponding weights in Helvetica Noia, which just gave them that, you know, th- they heard the feedback and said, we just need to be a little bit bolder. Um, and San Francisco now goes up to those bolder weights. That about rounds it up for software. Um, this is almost sort of like a little follow-up slash pointer back to previous episode. Um, of course, Apple has put uh, letters on various parts of their hardware products. Uh, of course, one of the places that they have to put those letters is on their keyboards. Um, otherwise, it would be very difficult for non-touch typists. All the way back in episode six, we talked about keyboards uh, and talked about three of the fonts that have been used there, um, including Universe, uh, the condensed oblique. That's like what's on the um, Apple extended keyboards. Uh, then VAG Rounded, which was used on some laptop keyboards. And today, if you go to the Apple Store, surprise, surprise, uh, you will get a keyboard that has San Francisco on it. Hardware keyboards where the keycaps were printed in San Francisco came out like right after our episode because we were talking about the like the rumored one port MacBook in that one, which was the first one to have it. And of course, uh, letter forms appear on Apple's physical products in places other than the keyboards, usually to show the product's name and the like regulatory stuff. And uh, this is kind of a nice segue into our next section, because usually that followed whatever font typeface Apple was using for their kind of corporate slash marketing typography, the things that their advertisements or uh, uh, lettering online or in their stores, etc., so one of the very first ones that they used, if, especially if you look at the Apple logotype or advertisements from like the Apple II era, is a very stylized display font, which is called Modern Tectura. Uh, and this is when Apple wrote their name Apple Computer all in lowercase. Uh, and you may also recognize this font from some other famous marketing because it's also the font that was used by Reebok for a long time. That's it. That's yep. They are the same font. Um it's a very rounded font, uh rounded and bold with uh very clear, you know, w- with the lowercase letters, the the line across the top, the uh the x height is very consistent. It looks very uh 80s futuristic. But one of the interesting things about this is that you'll also see like I said the logo type where there will be the Apple logo and then the A 
the lowercase a that begins the word Apple computer fits basically perfectly into the little bite that is out of the Apple logo. This was something I just learned for this episode. Um, So even though Apple has since moved on from using Mater Tectura in their corporate typography, uh, a little bit of like the geometry of that font still exists in the Apple logo itself. Yeah, and I guess that, you know, that's been canonized since then. And that maybe if you took the exact Apple logo from today, I don't know if you took the exact Apple logo from today and and put put it right over Modern Tectura, exactly how closely it would line up. But eyeballing it when they're not right next to each other, it looks the same, as opposed to some of the glyphs that were in those original Macintosh fonts. So I think it was in uh, Intaliasin. There are two versions of the Apple logo. Uh, one of them is the, quote, Picasso style, the the script style, where the bite is just like it's left open. There is no internal stroke there. And then there's one that's just the, you know, you would think of the, the filled Apple logo uh, that you can still type by pressing option shift K. Uh, and the, <laughs> that one does not look like the Apple logo. It looks like me trying to hand draw the Apple logo. It's just like, it's like, it's the wrong font size. It's, it's squishy. <laughs> it's a little bit squished. Um, so they were still, still, uh, working it out. And now of course there is some, you know, trademark filing that gives the exact obscure mathematical formula that gives you the, the shape of the leaf and the, the cut out of the apple. Um, if you're interested in finding that sort of thing. Moving on to Apple's next corporate font. This is probably the one most familiar to Mac users of the classic Mac era, the kind of starting with the Macintosh through the snow white and a little bit of the translucent plastic era of Mac hardware, Apple Garamond, um, maybe most famously known because it was the font used during the think different campaign. So if you remember those two words next to each other, you can probably visualize what this font looked like. True to its name, this is an Apple variant on an existing font, the Garamond font family. And it's known for being Super, super tight on the kerning um, and a very condensed looking font, um, very tall, thin letter forms um, that gave it a distinctive look. And Apple used it everywhere, like you said, from taglines that appeared on posters and billboards and at the end of TV ads saying think different to pretty much any new product ad. And they would use it in any size from, you know, the, the headline of a giant ad to then, you know, paragraphs and paragraphs of 10-point marketing copy telling you uh, exactly why the Power Macintosh G3 was the next best thing. Uh, You saying that it was a a very condensed font reminded me that I think, you know, being the kind of Apple fan and enthusiast that I was back then, I wanted to make my own fake product announcements or product brochures. And I think the the pirated font, certainly not the real deal that I'd gotten from some uh, shady website, surely, was I think called Garamond Condensed when uh, viewing in the font menu on my Mac. That would do it. Yeah, and because this was only used in marketing, it was never released as part of the system. There was no software package that you could buy that included the actual Apple Garamond font. It was totally proprietary. And the closest you could get was some sort of generic 
Garamond uh, knockoff that was trying to uh, trying to approximate it, or if you had uh, the Adobe suite of products around that time, they had an Adobe Garamond variant that they would include with Photoshop and Illustrator that then you could try to smush or tweak to try to make it look like the Apple version. But never it never quite came out right. It didn't. I can tell you from experience. Apple changed their kind of company-wide typography uh, somewhere shortly after the introduction of Mac OS X, but there was a nice little offshoot corporate font usage before then, which again happened just with the Newton product line. And for the kind of marketing materials and packaging, uh, they used Gil Sans, which is a nice little geometric rounded sans serif font. Gil Sans has uh, been an Apple favorite for a long time. So in the for a long time, when once Keynote was released, the default theme, the gradient theme that was used on stage by Apple for keynotes, even before the public release of the product, the the font that was used there by default was Gil Sands. And it's very distinctive, um, especially the T in Gil Sands is dead giveaway. It's got that triangle at the top. Um, Gil Sands also gets super weird at the very high, uh, very high font weights. Uh, if you ever want to laugh, look up like Gil Sands extra black because the I, the lowercase I in Gil Sands has a little curve under, under where the dot is. But for whatever reason, in the very, very, very thick font weights, the dot on the eye doesn't get any bigger, and it's just like lost in this little like soup bowl on top of the eye. It looks ridiculous. <laughs> um, Apple did not use that version, though. They stuck with the the more like regular and bold weights. I had never noticed that. That's hilarious. I remember having that pointed out to me at one point, and I thought like that's ridiculous. I'll never see it. And then um, for my last couple of years in grad school, there was a book on the shelf, like right across from the exit from the restroom that I always used, where the spine, the whole title was in Gil, Gil Sands, uh, extra bold. <laughs> and I just saw it every single time. <laughs> Moving on from that ridiculous font that Apple fortunately stayed away from, though. For most of the early 2000s, and maybe the, the very early part of the 2010s, Apple's corporate typography was actually an Adobe font, Myriad Pro. Um, I can think of a lot of keynote slides, uh, I think around like the iTunes, the height of the iTunes music store is what I think about when I, when I see words in this font. Um, and also a lot of like the very first MacBook Pro and Intel um, machines had their product names on the hardware itself set in this. Uh, so like the the first Intel iMacs with the kind of the white case that said a giant iMac on the back <laughs> was set in Adobe's Myriad Pro. Yeah, just mentioning this as being aligned with the early Intel era, the famous It's True slide, um, where the E then animated and slid down to be reminiscent of the Intel logo, that's in Myriad. But all of it has coalesced as with its operating systems um, in various weights of its in-house font, San Francisco. Yeah, I think it's interesting that everything has gone to San Francisco. And a lot of the times, 
even people who are extremely picky about typography will see some example of San Francisco or the new San Francisco Mono that they introduced as a monospace variant for for coding or for display. People will see where Apple has used San Francisco in some instance and go, man, that looks really good. Um, you know, we're all seeing it every day at the top of our menu bars, seeing it every time that you pick up your phone, the time is in San Francisco. It's everywhere, but it's extremely versatile. Um, and it's interesting that they've, I feel like Apple has not left behind this challenge of creating interesting typography, but they also don't have to be because of the explosion of font design, because they are not responsible for giving you the only 10 fonts that you're going to have to you know, create everything that you need to do with your Mac. They can leave that to third parties, but they, they haven't abandoned the sense of design, and they want to put extreme care and detail into creating basically just one font at this point, but one that's extremely versatile. And it's it kind of meshes with the way that they pitch uh, how they're designing Swift, which is, you know, it's it's kind of odd because one is, you know, very technical and one is very design oriented. But they say with Swift, like Swift is designed for you to write anything from an operating system or a compiler to a simple script. And the same thing for San Francisco, where they're like, we're going to design one font and its variants, but where it can be used for everything from marketing copy to the menu bar on your Mac to the time on your iOS device to Craig Federighi dropping the word no in 10,000 point font in the middle of a WWDC keynote. And it all looks good. <laughs> yes, that uh, good mathematics by you on that uh, Craig Federighi point using like the approximation of how tall he is. <laughs> it had to be at least into the hundreds in the actual keynote file. But if you if you tried to figure out how big it was actually projected, 10K right around there. And like we said, that brings us into the modern era. But there is one more font that Apple has used in a bit of corporate messaging and marketing, though it's not uh, one of these Latin character fonts we've been talking about. Instead, we can go back and close out the show with one more dingbat font. Yeah, these really are dingbats, if you think about it, aren't they? Um, They're not emoji, um, but it's a very specific set of dingbats. So this was for the 30th anniversary celebration of the Mac, where Apple created a special website for it. And there were these cool outline drawings of different Macintosh cases over the years. And I, the way that the website appeared, I, I assumed that they were just like SVG files or something. Um, you know, because, the, you know, if you zoomed in, they did scale up nicely. So I'm like, oh, well, they're SVGs. They just put them in there. But actually, for whatever reason, I, I don't know, maybe it was more efficient uh, to deliver than, than SVGs. They had actually rendered them as a font. Yeah. So like each character in this font, which I think we'll put a link to osxdaily.com. Um, someone was able to extract it from the website resources, but it's it's one of those things where like each character on your keyboard corresponds to a vector outline of a different Mac model. And they really like, they covered the entire Mac line. I'm looking at the preview here right now. They've got the 20th anniversary Macintosh, the G3 all-in-one, and then like even the different variants of Mac Mini, where it's like 
the original kind of squat box model, both with the CD drive and the server one without. Right. Which letter do I have to type to get the mirrored drive door version of the G4 tower? Exactly. They even have, because it was, you know, the 30th anniversary of the Mac was long enough ago that uh, the Trashcan Mac Pro was out, or at least announced. So they've got what has to be the simplest vector shape in the entire font. It's basically just a rounded rectangle. But like every everything is in here. The Mac Portable is in here. All the different all-in-one performas. It's a pretty cool font. Obviously, I bet if, if you would use it to kind of do your own custom timeline or uh, represent your own collection of classic Macs, at some point you'd probably want to export it as an image and then maybe we run into that emoji controversy we were talking into before, let alone the fact that this was uh, probably a font that Apple meant to be kept internal. But uh, it's not going to stop me from using it. I'll say that much. Yep, I've got a copy installed. And that's that's basically it. A, a nice tour of... Apple's typography in all the many ways it could manifest itself, whether physically or on your display, uh, basically from a little bit before the arrival of the Macintosh to today. But there's one more thing. So taking a close look at these fonts really made us remember just really how great they look um, and what cool uh, specimens of design they are. And it's been a long, long time since we uh, we first put out a Simple Beep T-shirt. Uh, we did that for our first anniversary, and it's been uh, it's been more than two and a half years since then. Um, so we are putting together uh, a the Simple Beep World Tour 1984-1985 shirt uh, because of all of the wonderful city names that are included: Los Angeles, Chicago, New York, Toronto, Monaco, Venice, Geneva. Cairo, if you can read it, Athens and San Francisco. And so we'll post a link to the t-shirt campaign uh, and where you can go and order one in the show notes. And we'll also be tweeting about it and giving reminders um, as any order deadline comes up. Um, But if you... If you've gotten this far, I think you love these fonts. Um, and as we said at the top of the show, they're better seen than talked about in some ways, although it's uh, it's good to go through and see how they were used uh, and talk about how they were used. Um, but if you want to uh, actually wear around uh, some examples of the excellent early Macintosh fonts, um, go ahead and buy a shirt. As always, if we somehow missed Uh, one of your favorite fonts from this era, or you would like to share a story or even better, a screenshot of some of these fonts in uh, settings that you remember, you can always get in touch with us. We have a contact form on our website, simplebeep.com, or you can find us on Twitter at simple underscore beep. You can also find us individually on Twitter. I'm at ecormany, E-C-O-R-M-A-N-Y. And I'm at bsuto, B-S-U-T-O. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.